The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at marines.com. Welcome to Dedicated with Doug Brunt. You have just gained access to an exclusive insider's look at the lives and works of some of your favorite authors and hear conversations with the world's greatest writers as they discuss their writing lifestyle, creative process, latest work, and behind-the-scenes revelations. Welcome to Dedicated. I'm your host, Doug Brunt. Today, we're talking to David Duchovny. He is an English literature PhD candidate at Yale, and in one of the greatest sliding door stories of all time, he paused his PhD work. He did not become Dr. Duchovny, and probably the most handsome English professor in American history. He started doing some theater around Yale, and before too long, he was a household name as an award-winning actor in feature films and hit TV shows like The X-Files and Californication. But the spirit of Dr. Duchovny lives on. He has written for television, including some episodes of The X-Files. And he's also the best-selling author of six books, including his latest, Kepler, which we have here, a graphic novel. So much to talk about. David, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for describing me as a, <clears throat> a, a PhD candidate in the present tense, because I guess, uh, I guess that I, there's always a hope that I will write my dissertation. I think they can never take it away from you. I I, uh, I want to talk about the, the dissertation because I, I think I have the name right. Um, sure. But before we get too yeah. deep into that, your cocktail selection for today is the tequila Greyhound or the, the Paloma, as it's also mm-hmm. called. Yes. So I'm going to make one. Okay. And we're, we're not, talking here in the morning. Not, but Not uh, too difficult a recipe to follow. Right. <laughs> the, tequila, the tequila grapefruit, which has plenty of uh, vitamins for the... The now the Greyhound, which is made with vodka, has salt on the rim, but but I don't recommend that for you know high blood pressure sufferers out there. I, I actually suffer from that, so I, I will yeah. opt out. Well, cheers, thank you don't for suffer. coming on. Cheers to you. Is that the San Remo behind you? Yeah, well spotted. So I also have a copy of the Reservoir here, and which I think that's the San Remo there too, right? Yeah, you have the reverse view of. Uh, of what mine was when I lived there. Yeah, I, I lived on the west side, just a few blocks up from the San Remo. Beautiful. Oh, I love the book, The Reservoir, um, which is yeah. set there, and you, a lot of it takes place in Central Park. I used to jog around the reservoir when I lived in the city. Yeah, yeah, uh, so did I. Um, you know, and there's some pretty good-sized potholes in that in that reservoir <laughs> track. <laughs> Definitely, and, and people going the wrong way. Occasionally it gets a little bit physical trying to get around. Is there a right way and a wrong way? I was never quite sure. I've gone. I always ran counterclockwise. I thought that was the way to go. Yes, I think that's the way I ran. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's start at the because I know you're you're born in New York and you went to yep. the collegiate school, which so listeners know is academically very rigorous, terrific school, and particularly has a reputation for teaching kids how to write well. Some of the other alums there are David Benioff, sure. who was a writer and showrunner for Game of Thrones. JFK Jr., I think, may have overlapped with you there at, at Collegiate? Certainly did. <clears throat> yeah, my first <clears throat> my first uh, year, uh, John was there. And and uh, my family lore, which which uh, isn't, you know, writ large. But <clears throat> the idea was uh, I, I tried to get into Collegiate when I was in second grade going into third grade. And I didn't get in. And my mother always told me that JFK Jr. got my spot. So when I when I did get into the school in high school, I was gunning for uh, JFK there, you know, and uh, I was like, you know, going to tell him that he had taken my spot. And I, but my first day there, 
I, I was in the lunchroom and I asked some of the, my new friends or guys that I was getting to know, which one is John John? And they just schooled me and they said, his name is John. Was he the same year as you? Yeah. Same yeah. year. Pretty good friends. I, was he a teammate too? Because I know you were, a, you were a standout baseball and basketball player there. He, he was not a teammate. He was not, he was not athletic. Uh, and he did leave after uh, my freshman year. But we, we did a school trip to Washington that year um, in the fall. And I was just a new student. And they, they actually roomed me. Um, and we spent one night in a hotel in Washington. And I, I shared a room with John. Uh, uh, I guess, you know, they let the new kid with John I don't know what it was but um so we got to know each other and you know we, we knew each other for that year and then I would run into him every now and then especially at like Nick games in the 90s mm -hmm. and, and and see him yeah you were I know you were a key man there or, or head boy or something because you were not only head were boy. you a, a head boy that was what yeah because you were a stud athlete as well as you know academically uh a standout yeah. too we actually have one other collegiate connection which yep. you couldn't possibly know about but i was a collegiate parent i didn't go there but my kids did and they uh -huh. they're so focused on writing there that they do this thing every year called author night and you and i never had a book out in the same year so we never did it together but i went every year anyway because my my kids were there and so i was there watching you do the event when your bucky dent book was out yeah yeah and i think you were on stage <laughs> well, with a classmate maybe right um was Peter Blatter on stage, maybe? Yeah, he was like your agent, maybe? Or you guys are still have a professional association, I think. <clears throat> well, Andrew Blatter is, is my agent, and Peter Blatter is his brother, who was my okay. classmate at Collegiate. Okay. Andrew was a few years younger. And Peter's a terrific novelist and uh, also works uh, writing for television, um, has worked in like the Dick Wolf universe for quite a bit. And um, yeah, that's the thing about Collegiate. Um, as you said, as you said in your introduction, it really, I don't know what your experience was with, with your child, but <clears throat> looking back on it, it really was a school that was focused on writing. Um, not, not to the exclusion of the sciences, for sure, but just in their history, in their English classes, uh, we, we wrote a hell of a lot. And that, that education for me was invaluable. And was there a teacher there, like a standout? You know, sometimes you have that one middle school or high school English teacher that just makes you fall in love with it. They were all great um, <clears throat> in different ways. Uh, you know, I remember Jim Shields, who was a longtime head of the English department there, uh, a wonderful teacher. Um, I've written, I've written kind of uh, around uh, a relationship that I had with a Latin teacher there, who, which was also extremely important for me as a you know 14 to 18 year old uh, uh named james rogers who is deceased uh but he was wonderfully difficult wonderfully hard teacher um you know this is from a different age when when teachers really challenged you mm -hmm. and yeah. made you feel made you feel uncomfortable you know which yeah. i which i'm you know being old-fashioned in my own way i i feel i feel that part of being educated well is actually being challenged and being made uncomfortable. I, I totally, you can't be coddled. And so when our kids come home, complain, I'm like, good. I'm glad he's, you know, I don't want to hear you coming home being coddled in there. That doesn't sound right. That's yeah. certainly not what I went through. Yeah. Yeah. So and, you finished um, up collegiate as uh, as head boy, you go into Princeton where you continue to play some basketball. You're winning awards for writing poetry on to Yale for the PhD. And let me see if I have the thesis, right. Magic and technology in modern fiction and poetry. Well, you have it right, but it doesn't exist. So <laughs> it needs yet to be completed. Yeah. yeah. So is this like Jules Verne type stuff, or is that is that not yet considered modern? No, that's that's too old to be modern. I was thinking it was more like contemporary. Um, <clears throat> I was going to write on um, on James Merrill, who did a lot of like seance oriented poetry. Um, Robertson Davies, uh, the Canadian author, uh, Ishmael Reed. Uh, mumbo jumbo specifically uh pension crying about 49 and gravity's rainbow specifically mm. and mailer norman mailer like of a fire on the moon and uh my 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 thesis idea which i don't know if it would have worked out or not but it was something that i liked was uh i guess to put it in a nutshell it would be that there's always been authors uh, interested in magic and magic has always been something that's discussed 
you know. And historically, there were fields of magic that were were good and bad. You know, was, you could call them white and black magic or whatever. But there was there was a moral kind of valence or or aspect to magic. Doctor Faustus being an obvious kind of a cautionary tale that there were there was magic you should do and magic you shouldn't do magic you could do and magic you shouldn't do and that in my discussion um technology was going to be like a, a modern magic you know and clearly is i mean we do things that seem magical we fly through the air we you know our lives are are littered with us being magical beings with the aid of technology mm-hmm. and yet technology is not necessarily discussed in terms of morality maybe in terms of pollution morality but not not in and of itself and the, the yeah, bare fact morality always that, lags quite a bit yeah we've never had a weapon that we haven't used unfortunately so obviously the morality in the technologic tech technology of weaponry or just technology itself was absent and that i, I was going to address these authors who were bringing a field of morality into technology, uh, which which was not something uh, that is part of the actual science of it. What what's remaining on the PhD? You have to go do a sort of an oral defense of your thesis, or you have it. to write something. <laughs> you have to write it. You have to do the whole thing. Okay. What what yeah, are the odds I, you revisit this and and become Doctor Duchovny? Well, unless like Dr. Faustus, some devil visits me and, and gives me a, a freebie and says, here's your dissertation in exchange for your soul or something else, then I'd say the odds are not very good at all. I mean, it could be like an exchange for your autograph at this point. Maybe they'll just come in and say, you know. I, I would do that, although there's always a catch <laughs> that I'm not seeing. So, um, and, and you can tell by the preamble to this conversation, my, my, my loathing of technology is strong, you know, and my... And, 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 the, and the machines know it. I break everything just by looking at it. So I, I have a real adversarial relationship with the world we're, we're living it, in right now. Well, and it's so nice to be sort of coming through the virus situation where we don't have to get on the Zooms all the time. We can get back in person. There is something kind yeah. of old school about getting in a room together that's so nice now. There are things we don't know that we lose when we're not face-to-face. Uh, you know, we, we, I'm sure there will be studies that come out, but you know, yeah. I, I can intuit it and you can intuit it. So I, I asked, you know, in that preamble, I also joked about sliding doors, but uh, I, I wonder if that really even applies in your situation. Because sometimes I, I wrestle between sliding doors versus inevitable. Like sometimes it's not like turn left instead of right and wind up with this whole new thing. I, when I feel like there are two, two groups of actors sometimes when I think about it. On the one hand, there's somebody like Robin Williams. And I bet if you spent 10, million, 10 minutes in a room with him in the 70s, you think, oh my God, this guy needs a show and it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And then there are other times yeah. you watch a movie where you see someone who's like, they're fine, you know, no knock, but if it wasn't this guy, right place, right time, it'd be one of a million other guys. And I think right. you are more in the inevitable category. What do you, what do you think about that? I mean, I like it. It's, it's flattering. Um, <laughs> I, I think, uh, um, you know, I thought where you were going with that is that, you know, my, my particular uh, presentation of my personality or of my or my human energy is not is not one that people would associate with performance or or you know extreme expressiveness like <clears throat> Robin had or even just his his the facility of his of his comedic mind. So um, I thought you were going with like oh well you don't seem like an actor, which is what I got when I first started out. You know, mm-hmm. uh, aside from them knowing if they knew my personal history, they they might say. Why do you, why are you doing this? You know, what, what, what's the need? It's almost like the question was, there's something missing from actors. There doesn't seem to be something missing from you. Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, well, it's, uh, you know, I did a lot of looking around at you to get ready for this. So I saw your appearances on a few different podcasts and, and TV shows right. and things like that. And, and you're definitely not Robin Williams, but there's a different power to the way you do it. And one of the things I was amazed at and surprised at in watching a bunch of footage of you is how funny you are. And it's because it's so deadpan. It's unbelievable. And then when you land it, there's no window dressing or wind up to it. And then when you land it, it's all the more surprising and powerful because you're like, wait, did he say what? And like, have you ever seen the comedian Stephen Wright? <laughs> yeah, I love Stephen I mean, Wright. you're not, he sort of strays into the bizarre. You're not exactly that, but you're that kind of deadpan where it just like totally gets you. 
Yeah. Um, uh, he has one of my favorite jokes of all time where he says something like, I have an extensive seashell collection. I keep it on all the beaches of the world. <laughs> yeah, there's another one where he's like, you know, I'm leaning back in the chair. You know that feeling when you're leaning back in the chair and you're just about to fall and you don't, you catch yourself and you're, I feel that way all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's yeah. uh I haven't seen anything out of that guy in a long time, but I used to to oh, love his. Nor have I. Um, yeah, well, I think that I don't know where the deadpan comes from. I really don't know. I mean, I'm a huge Buster Keaton fan, and I just read his biography, and and just to just to think about the origins of that comedic brilliance that he had, and and to somehow keep to keep a straight face to all you know, intents and purposes, looking at somebody keeping a straight face. And yet there's some communication of the chaos that's going yeah. on around them, you know, and I, and I guess, you know, Keaton for me is the best of the best. And, and, and I guess that's kind of, if I'm trying to be funny or I'm existing on film in a funny situation, then I, I see it as, as deadpan, but I see also, or I feel also that I'm communicating something about the chaos around me or about what I deem as funny. And I go back to a story that Shanling told me, Gary Shanling, where who's a great friend of mine. And, and he said um, he was performing in Vegas and uh, he knew Don Rickles was in the audience. And, you know, that generation of comics was a huge, you know, Rickles was a, was godlike. And he, he was worried, you know, does Rickles think I'm funny? And then Rickles came backstage and Gary asked him, you know, as comedians do, was how'd I do? Was I funny? And and Rickles said, Did you feel funny? And that's that's how I've that's how yeah. I've gone. Ever since I've heard that story, it was like, oh, that's I think that's how I'm working. It's like I'll do a take and it won't be any different from the previous take, but I will have felt funny in it. And yeah, maybe that's some different energy. Means by feeling funny, you know, by yeah. by that that feeling. And, uh, and there's there's something just whether you're doing comedy or drama, there's something unique about you in, in the way like some people are writing screenplays only for Jeff Goldblum or something like that because it's just <laughs> you don't look at him and think one of a million guys could also do this. Mm. There are probably people writing screenplays on, like only David Duchovny can play this role. Like there's just something different and unique about it's you. Your that, uh, you're yeah, you're, you're uh, certainly getting a lot of work. There must be there must be yeah. that happening. But, but but I mean, when I was starting out as an actor, I, I certainly, you know, I I was rejected from many, many auditions that I did. And uh, I I did have a sense in which I was not not that they were going to catch up to me, but but that somebody was going to get what I thought I was doing, you know, because I felt funny, you know, and I was like, oh, they're not they're not getting it. But eventually I thought I had a belief that they would and. That's that's an amazing thing to me when I think back on it. It's like, why didn't I lose faith? Why didn't I give up? You know, because I certainly did audition for a lot of things and didn't what, get. What did keep I you was, going? Just an inner belief that I think I will get there because that's you know getting rejections as an actor or as a writer, all that stuff is so soul crushing. Yeah. It is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where the belief came from, but it was it was just basically that sense of. I'm doing something here, whether or not people are seeing it, you know, eventually, eventually they're going to see. And I've also talked about this and, and this is true. And um, when I, when I first started doing the X-Files, there was so much work. It was, it was 14 hours a day and it was, I mean, I was acting 10 months of the year, 14 hours a day for like three, three years in the beginning, let's say the first three years. And even though I was playing the same character, I, I taught myself how to act over those three years. So, but in the beginning, I was convinced that I was the best actor on the planet, you know, and I certainly was not when I look at it, not convinced. I don't walk around like that, but like I had that inner belief. And it's funny you talk, you ask me about this because when I look back on like, say a first uh, season episode, I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're not good at all. Dave. And yet, <laughs> and yet I had this, belief to kind of carry me over to the point at which I started getting better. And I, and I was actually accessing what I thought I'd been accessing and that I wasn't. 
That's funny. I, there's a, a different writer coming on the show in, in a couple of weeks. And so I've been reading his books. And I was like, I just got your debut novel. He goes, oh my God, don't read that. It's the most embarrassed. I'm hugely <laughs> embarrassed right now. It's the worst published novel ever. But it's funny to go back and read your early writing or your early yeah. uh, acting to think. But so, you know, 14 hours a day for three years, that's like forced acting boot camp. I mean, of course you can just sort of, you know, there's oh. a certain amount of repetition in almost anything, even if it's artistic, there's a certain amount of repetition that repetition I mean, it was that, that helps. It was that Gladwell thing. It was that whatever, how many hours. It yeah, was. the 10,000 so hours. It, yeah. it was it was a lot of hours. And again, I'm not playing different characters with all those hours, but the X-Files had kind of a flexible tone, so I could kind of push this Mulder mm -hmm. character into a comedic episode. I could push him into a soap opera episode. I could push him into horror. I could push him into thriller. And that kind of allowed, allowed me to expand and contract a little bit, you know, even though I was yeah. playing the same character. When you So your first kind of, I don't know if this was even a breakout role, because I guess it was a smaller role, but in 88, you did Working Girl, which was like the cast on that was insane. It was Harrison yeah. Ford and Sigourney yeah. Weaver, Melanie Griffith. You were yeah. pretty young then. I mean, that was not long after Yale when you when you did that film. Yeah, I was probably 27, 28. But, you know, that was I was a glorified extra in that I was I was really cast as, uh, you know, a part of uh, Tess's Melanie Griffith's Staten Island uh, cohort. And the idea was, um, you know, the part as, as it was sold to me and they didn't have to sell it to me because I would have taken any job offered. Me, but it was as it was sold to me was, you know, you'll get a chance to go in there and improvise. And, you know, Mike Nichols is the director. This is a great opportunity. When in fact, we didn't really do much improvising at all. And I'm, I'm, I'm basically an extra with really good billing. I think I'm like sixth on the whole movie. And I was like, how the hell did that happen? I don't, you know, I'm not doing anything. Yeah. But it was fun to see Mike Nichols work. It was, you know, enlightening to see what I thought of as like the, you know, the, the A level of, of Hollywood, you know, production and, same thing happened on Chaplin when I when I worked on Chaplin a couple of years later. And again, this could be my my overconfidence in a way, which I'm I'm touting as something that's necessary when you're starting out. It's objectionable, but it's necessary. Um, when I watched Chaplin and I watched I watched uh, Robert Downey work and I watched Kevin Klein work in Attenborough and no slight on them. They're amazing. But I thought, hey, I'm in the right place. I, I'm not they're not doing anything that I'm not seeing that I'm not doing. Like it's, it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't, I mean, it was way better than I was doing it, but I, I could see myself like existing in, in that yeah. creative world. So that was important for me as well. Were you also writing at this time, novels or screenplays? Uh, I was trying to write, I was trying to write a, a screenplay. Um, that's actually what got me out to, to Hollywood in the first place was uh, I met a guy who who wanted me to try to write this screenplay. And um, I came out here and I stayed at his house on PCH um, and tried to write for a while while I was initially auditioning for stuff. So I was, I, I was trying to, you know, work both, both sides of the street on that. Um, but then as I, as I got work as an actor, I, I couldn't, I didn't have the time to write anymore or the focus that I, mm -hmm. that I would need. Yeah. Well, that, that's, that's a good segue into your writing process, which I want to talk to you about, because part of it is like, where are you finding the time? You know, you're jetting around, you're doing Bill Maher and late night shows, and you're in a bunch of TV shows and movies. Where do you find the time now? To, can you write on a plane? Or I, I picture you kind of like your character in the reservoir, like in the quiet room, sort of, you know, solo yeah. up there and uh, just sort of well, that, working away. That's how I have, that's how I have written. Um, I, I, I think... The, the, when I first started writing uh, fiction or novels, it was probably 2014 or 2015. And my kids were in middle school and, and early high school. And I was pretty much committed to staying in New York to, to raise, to help raise them, you know, and not being mm -hmm. um, all, all over the world or, or, or across the country. So that limited the amount of, uh, jobs I could take. I had Californication, which was great because it was like a three-month gig. And I could work it during the summers. I could have my kids out there in California. So aside from that, I was like, I was looking at, you know, eight or nine months of the year 
And I was wondering, you know, I don't really want to pursue that much acting in those times because I want to be here for the kids. So it was really put up or shut up time as a writer. I was like, well, I have all this time. You know, the kids are off to school at, you know, eight and then they're not back till four or five. So what am I going to do with my days? And I've always considered myself a writer. So let's see if you can do it. And it was actually that spot, you know, looking out at the reservoir getting up early and writing for four or five hours that really uh, started me on the, uh, the process is always, yeah. if I have an idea, I'm not writing if I don't have an idea. So you, a couple of just quick mechanical idea. questions on, on process. So you write in the morning, yeah. typically like coffee and then just always. sort of crank I, it out through I the morning. Write, I can't write at night. I can do very, very little at night. I mean, sometimes I can think at night, but I can't really write at night. And around noon, I start to lose whatever it is I think I'm doing. If I if I get yeah. up early, yeah. I try to get up before the sun, you know, and have coffee, and then just just take that again. It's for me. It's about uh, false confidence. You know, coffee gives me false mental <laughs> confidence that I that, that caffeine I, is a drug. It works. It, absolutely, um, it's a drug. You know. So do you write by hand or do you do you key it in right away? I key it in, which is funny because I'm not a good typist. I'm a hunt I'm still a hunt and peck guy. So yeah. I'll 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 have the computer, but I'll also have a, a legal pad and a pen off to the side so that if if I start um, thinking faster than I can write, I will I will drop the keyboard and I will just write it out by hand. That's funny. I, I'm also a little bit hunting back. I, I can type with about, with these six figures, fingers is basically what I do. And I was joking the other day, that I'm, I'm like, when you talk about a, a prize fighter who's sort of pound for pound is, is good, like <laughs> finger for finger, I'm pretty quick if you're just doing yeah. six fingers. Yeah. Um, it's amazing to me that I would have stared at this keyboard for as long as I have in my life and have no idea the order of the letters that I'm looking at. That yeah. I'm all I remember is QWERTY. At. That's the only thing I've got. Well, that's your home base, right? Yeah. I fast. I, I, I took speed typing in high school and there was a moment when I could do it and then I forgot. Yeah, the, the, the look away thing. I can never look away and just type. That just seems impossible to me. Branson uh, wrote the corrections in the dark. He typed it in in the dark? I haven't heard I that think, story. I remember reading that and I was like, oh God, he's so lucky his fingers didn't slip up a line and he would have just had a nonsense book on it. Right, right, it just been gibberish. Yeah. Um, I read where you find you sometimes can surprise yourself with what happens next in the book. So I take it, you know, some some writers outline a bunch. Some feel like outlining will take away from the energy of the book. Sounds like you're not an outliner. I, I, no, I am an outliner to an extent. Um, I do like to know where I'm beginning and where I'm ending. I do like to know some signposts along the way for sure. Um, but I'm not a meticulous outliner. And sometimes I get anxious to start writing you know mm -hmm. and so then i'll just begin even if even if i don't have enough i think to go on and then i will surprise myself and then the legal pad is there for you know because i'll be typing a scene or i'll be typing a section and i'll have an idea for three sections away and i'll need to write that out um but i like to be surprised because i think at, at certain points at least my experience of writing the characters take on a life of their own and the characters start to, if not speak to me, you know, it sounds like I'm a crazy person, but they at least, you know, I will have something outlined for them to do and they'll start to maybe argue against that and say, I'd rather go here and then I'll mm -hmm. follow them after a certain point. So I don't think if I, if, if I were to meticulously outline it to really stay in the outline until I had the whole story, I don't think it would be the, the best story that it could be for the yeah. way that I work, because once I get into it, that's when it starts to get more particular. Yeah. And you're also writing a bunch of music, I think, or at least yeah, you have an album yeah. out, I think, right? Are, are you writing the lyrics and the music or how's that? Um, yeah, three, three albums and, and then I'll be like recording a fourth soon. I have a lot of songs, but, but mostly it's, um, I'm not a great musician and I'm, I'm still like, I, I, I started playing guitar maybe 10 years ago, so I'm never going to be any good, but I know chords now. I can play chords and so I can write, I can write rock and roll songs, you know, so I'll, I'll write chords and melodies and lyrics and, and then I'll, I'll bring it to the band and they'll make it better. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that's been the process before, but now we're more of a band and now we're kind of writing together and i'll come in with a seed 
of a song. Now, instead of like trying to finish it all by myself, I'll bring it to the band and we'll, we'll complete it together. That's amazing you did that. I, I started taking piano lessons not long ago, and it was just so hard. I'm like, I gave it up. I'm, the fact that you stuck you with did. it and you're actually making albums now, I, it's inspiring me to maybe maybe try that well, again. Well, I think guitar is easier, you know, to be uh, mediocre at than piano. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it, which is what I'm at. And you just you just have to get to mediocre to know enough to, to write rock and roll songs anyway. So... Mm -hmm that's where i'm firmly there i'm firmly mediocre and um it's really uh i wish i wish that i could play lead i wish i could i wish i could finger melodies out you know but i can't so i'm stuck with my chords and my with yeah. whatever's inside my head in terms of melody you know it reminds me a little bit of john McEnroe, not not just on the music piece i know he's also in a band and i think yeah. you know, got more serious about music a little bit later on you guys reminded me of each other in a way, too, about just being these iconic New Yorkers. Like, you know, there's that famous photo of McEnroe. He's like walking in the city with a trench coat and it's raining and stuff. I, I think of you two in the same way as this, like, you've got this classic New York, New York vibe. Like, I'm a good guy, but do not F with me. Uh, or it's not going to end well for you. And just have sort of a New Yorker New Yorker vibe. Do, do you know McEnroe? Yeah. I, yeah, a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't say we're friends, but I, I know him to say hello and... Uh... And in fact, uh, uh, I, I love I love tennis, and I, I play some not so much recently, but I like playing tennis. And one time, I recall uh, uh, when I was married out here, uh, Tay and I I guess we just both had a day off together for some reason, and we decided to smoke a joint and go play tennis, and we went up to the you know, we went up high to go play tennis and we were having fun. And then McEnroe showed up on the court next to me and I had a complete like paranoid meltdown where I was like, oh, my God, I can't play tennis next to the best player of all time. I can't do it. I can't do it. I was like, is he watching me? Is he watching? I was like, no, no, he's not watching you at all. <laughs> he, he's had quite a second career here as the announcer. I, I love when he's calling the it's just like he's a great. frankness to the way he does it. It's just great when he calls Absolutely. the matches. He is. He tells the truth, which is so it's it's hard. It's hard for you for these announcers to, you know, tell the truth. And uh, he's his his insights are are wonderful. Um, yeah. And no, he, he's smart. You know, I, I wrote a book where uh, the main character was a tennis player, a professional tennis player. So he came up as a prodigy yeah. and and uh, James Blake helped me a lot with the research. And one of the things he was saying, and I, I heard you on the Rob Lowe podcast. Let me think of this a little bit. Um, James Blake was saying. So he, he came from this family that really valued education. And when he was out on tour, the first thing his parents would say to him are, James, what are you reading? Or what's the last thing you read? And he always yeah. had an answer. And he was in like the player's lounge and some of the other guys of his era were there. And they asked that question, he had an answer. And they're like, what are you reading? He's like, I haven't read a book in like five years. Uh, you know, the most I read is, you know, People Magazine once in a while. Nobody on the tour was reading or focused on education because they all were down at Boletari playing tennis eight hours a day and right. not doing that kind of thing. Right. Um, I don't when know. I was... It it, it kind of gets. I remember reading this article about uh, A Rod, about Alex Rodriguez, and it was it was uh, his sports psychologist. I don't know who the guy was. One of his trainers, <clears throat> and he was saying, you know, the typical person has. And I'm going to make up the numbers, but I'm going to get the ratio of the numbers similar. So the typical person has twenty thousand thoughts in a day. Alex has 500 and that's why he's a great hitter because you know, right. That don't think just do <laughs> exactly. The, well, I mean, that's not to say that he wasn't taught and he wasn't, uh, you know, he didn't get better, you know, with, with teaching how to hit. He wasn't just see ball, hit ball, but somehow he can voluntarily he put the thoughts out. He had a quiet mind uh, or yeah. his mind was really just interested in hitting, you know? So, that's, I think, you know, we're, we're always asking our athletes to, you know, read books and stuff. But in fact, that might be, that might make them worse athletes. Well, what about acting? Because that, that was a topic that came up with you and Rob in the podcast that I noticed. And he was like, David Duchovny is by far the smartest, most well-read, you know, guy. And, and, you know, Rob's worked with thousands of actors and over his, yeah. you know, amazing career. Yeah. Um, he seemed to have a take that most actors are 
you know, they can do their lines and they do that stuff, but they, you know, you're, maybe you're so focused in, in the way that you are focused as a tennis player or a baseball player on doing this one thing. You don't have a broader, um, I don't know, knowledge base, whatever it is, broader education, knowledge base. What Have you found that in act, in acting that, you know, I mean, you're at Yale for crying out loud, getting a PhD. Yeah. I think it can be true that too much uh, intellectual pursuit can kind of hamstring you as an actor. Uh, and when I certain when I started, you know, I, I the second acting teacher that I was kind of in deep with was a Meisner technique guy, which is uh, which is an interesting technique from Sanford Meisner, and he was always like, you know, your intellect is your enemy up here. You know, this is about reaction this is about emotional reaction it's not about thinking and there's 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 a lot of truth there what you're thinking can get you to a point of you know i I need to understand the emotions of this scene uh Uh, as well or or the structure of the piece or my place in the piece of this you know as an actor but the 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 actual give and take of, of 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 being in a scene with somebody and again, it's like tennis. It's just like hitting a ball back and forth, but you're not, it is a sport in that case. You're just, you just got to hit that ball back wherever, wherever mm-hmm. it's coming at you. And there's no amount of thinking at that point about your stroke and about your, you know, the crowd or whatever that's going to help you. It's really just instinctual reaction. So I think there is uh, there is something to it. And I think that was really one of the reasons I was attracted to acting was because it was so different from anything I'd done and very much similar to all the sports I played that I loved Mm -hmm. that I was no longer playing. So there was, I think this discussion is kind of bringing it clearer and focused to me as to, you know, I I, I don't want to be one of those people because I don't believe it to say actors don't read or actors are dumb or whatever. I will say that, you know, being book smart or anything like that is not necessarily an advantage. You know, mm-hmm. and and you can you can be layering over, um, you know, your kind of reactive emotionality with rational book learning or whatever, and that's not necessarily a good thing for your work. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if you know your comment, a quiet mind, that kind of stuck out. Like if you can get to the place where you're not having those twenty thousand thoughts, you gotta you yeah. know dial it back, <laughs> just get in the moment. Yeah, I mean, what was funny was like obviously when I read the article about A Rod, you know, if you tell that story. It's it, you want to laugh at the story because oh, A Rod doesn't have many thoughts. But mm-hmm. I'm not saying you know. I'm actually saying to have a quiet mind and to not have that many thoughts is is a is, is a wonderful place to be. And yeah, it's not a, necessarily it's something that he didn't work on. You know? mm-hmm. Right. Um, wanted to. Uh, I know uh, we don't have unlimited time with you, but uh, so I wanted to talk about Kepler here, which I read and love. This graphic novel is so cinematic and it's a fascinating, I guess, sort of allegory really for, you know, humankind. It's sort of taps into some of your X-Files background too, with sort of the Kepler is a, is a planet uh, system. And um, I I love some of the things in there too, like the cultural appropriation of the Bonobian third eye. I got a, I got a chuckle out of that as well. Um, right. It's really well done, and it sounds like it may have started. It, there's there's some thinking that it could be cinematic. There's a sort of a screenplay version of it, maybe. Uh, yeah, well, there's a pilot that I wrote um, probably four or five years ago, just out of the blue, because I'd read this book, Sapiens, this this uh, bestseller. Oh, yeah. Yep. And in in that book, I was reading about. Um, you know, all the other hominids that we shared this planet with at some point in, in mm-hmm. history, prehistory, you know, unrecorded history. And the Neanderthals especially seem to have been um, very close to us because obviously um, so many Homo sapiens have Neanderthal DNA. So Yeah, we're like we, 3% Neanderthal or something, right? So, so we interbred with them, outcompeted them, whatever that means. You know, like <laughs> you see the word outcompete, it could also mean genocide eradication you know decimation of of an entire group of hominids that's lost in prehistory and it's not just neanderthals it's, you know we have denisovans floriensis you know and and we'll probably continue to to find evidence of all these other hominids and i was just struck with the idea 
of our prehistory, you know, of the violence of it, of of the appropriation of it, you know, appropriation mm-hmm. of their DNA at the, at the, very, at the, the base sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I thought, well, on another planet, um, would would other hominids have outcompeted us, or especially if we had meddled in their in their competition? So I, I was all, also always wanted to get back to like this formative movie going moment that happened to me, probably happened to a lot of people in my generation when you know Charlton Heston comes upon the Statue of Liberty on yeah, the beach, yeah. Yeah. of the Apes. And, you know, to a 10-year-old or whatever it was when I saw it, it just blew my mind. It's like I had no idea. I didn't see it coming. And there wasn't any social media which would have given away the, the gag too soon. So yeah, I I mean, only Charlton Heston can pull off that classic line of, oh, my God, in that raspy, deep voice, just, oh, my God. And then the pant. You yeah. finally did it. He's like, you finally did it. Yeah. You bastards. I think he calls you bastards. You know, and it's also like in, in – uh, Shyamalan did it in the sixth sense where oh well, they're all you know like so there mm-hmm. there are these moments in cinema or tv where you can pull off these this great rug pulling out from under yeah. the audience and I always wanted to do that so this was kind of my entry into that sweepstakes of uh, in Kepler where you know we're the aliens you know I think they've yeah. done it a couple times in the twilight zone uh, where, you know, mm-hmm. to serve man, basically, you know, where all of the cookbook is people, you know, these are kind of great, great kind of reveals. And I kind of wanted to enter into that. Oh, it's a great book. I would love to see it get on the screen. I, I also love The Reservoir, too, which which is like Thank a you. great, unreliable narrator uh, book that, that has you sort of like hanging on, like, what is actually happening here? Um, right. And I noticed you mentioned Jess Walter in the uh, acknowledgments or something in here, who I think is amazing yeah. too. So you and Jess are buddies. We are. We uh, Jess has been kind of in in and out of Hollywood for years, uh, writing screenplays. Uh, but we became friends the last maybe five or six years, and and we've done a couple of uh, book events together where he's interviewed me or I've interviewed him. And mm-hmm. I do, I agree with you. I think he's one of the great American novelists out there right now. And Is he any good at basketball? A, he's really good has it. He's pretty good. Nice. He's like, really can he hang with you? Oh, yeah. And you played college, yeah. at, you know, you played college basketball. That's like another level. Well, it, was time, it was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> Jess, uh, Jess uh, only sees out of one eye, but he can he can shoot the three. I mean, he's, he's legendary in my mind. We we, t- we still we still talk about this because <clears throat> I went I went to do a reshoot uh, reshoots for a movie called The Joneses in uh, in Spokane, which is where Jess lives. But three days in Spokane, and uh, I just called and said, you know, do you have a you have a run? Do we have a game here? And he was like, yeah. So he brought me to this game on asphalt. It was fun. I mean, I was hurting afterwards for like a couple of weeks, just asphalt on your ankles. But he tells me that the, that game still to this day, if he goes to play it, you know, they're like, hey, is the company coming? You know, like like it was just this weird thing that he showed up with me at this at this pickup game one time. By the way, congratulations on saying Spokane because I had I had Jess on the show and I'm like Spokane, and he's sort of one of the benefits <laughs> oh, of being yeah. the same. I could sort of see the wince, and I'm like, hmm. And then the next time he's, he very politely was, it's Spokane. <laughs> he's, he's he's very polite. Yeah, he's, he's a great guy. You're a talented writer, and you've had this big life. It, sometimes that's a recipe for a memoir. Is that is there any chance of that coming? No. No? <laughs> well, make this better. You know, those those books tend to work best with a little betrayal and score settling, and that, that doesn't exactly seem yeah. your style. I don't mind a good score settling, especially if it's deserved, <laughs> but I... I not into betrayal, uh, especially you know. I have, I have young, not young, but I have children who who could. They don't need to. They don't need to know. They don't need to read all that. Know. Yeah, no, I agree. Like, and, uh, not everyone needs to put their personal life out on Instagram, and it's like you have these sweet, tender moments of like, oh, this is a great moment for Instagram. I, I don't, I don't know. understand that. And it's also, I I feel like, I'm I. I'm in a nice position because I, I know that, that I can kind of use my life or what's happened with me in, in my work. I can kind of transmute it into something else. I, mm-hmm. I feel like memoirs are 
obviously they're not the truth because they're one person's memory of the way things went down. But, you know, I'm all for like turning it into art and that's, there's the, the lessons are there. The lessons are not, you know, yeah. this happened, that happened, the other thing happened. This is what I learned. That seems like a healthier way to go. I was noticing that Matthew Perry book had these, like, he kept making these mentions of Keanu Reeves. I didn't read it. I just saw the headlines about this. But it was just like, I don't know if you saw that, but it was such a random drive-by shooting of poor Keanu Reeves. I don't know why he was going after the guy. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, that could be score settling for him on some level that he's not, that he's not revealing. But that's, that's the thing is like, you know, I don't, I don't really want to hurt people. Um, um, and, and even just mentioning people is hurtful sometimes. Like I, 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 yeah. I don't, I'm not into it, but, uh, like I said, you know, score settling is, is certainly, a it, that's okay, but not, it doesn't have to be a public score settling, a private score settling is, is just yeah. as, uh, satisfying. Yeah. Well, I, I, it sounds like your relationship with Taylor is great. I did want to mention one thing. We, Every Christmas, we watch The Family Guy. That has become mm. one of our Christmas go-tos with, uh, with Taylor Leone and, and uh, Nicolas Cage. Yeah. It's an awesome movie. Yeah, she's, she's terrific. Um, yeah, and that, and that movie, it's, it's kind of like a, a, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, you know. Yeah. It, it's kind of in that, in that ballpark. All right, so to the lightning round. Yeah. I'm going to have one more. The Paloma has been doing me right, by the way. I've been <laughs> And you're getting your vitamin C. And I believe it lowers totally. cholesterol. Oh, um, I should have three or four of these a day then. I think you should. <laughs> Favorite book as a kid, 14 or younger? I loved um, The Open Man by Dave, Dave DeBuscher. It was his, his, uh, his memoir of the... Wait, uh, the, the New York Knicks basketball player? Yeah. Am I thinking of the right guy? Okay, I'll have to get that book. Um, I like him. I went to college with his daughter. I had a book, you know, we used to order from the scholastic remember the, the in school you would order from some magazine that had all the, these books in it and i ordered a book called winners never quit which is about it was inspiring sports stories and um you know mickey mantle's in there because of how many knee operations he had and what stuck out to me from that book willie mays might have been in it too but um there was a a race car driver oh that's another here, I should. There was a race car driver named, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it's like Hurtibus, H U R T I B U S E, I think, Jim Hurtibus. And he had this terrible wreck where he was burned and, it, and his hands were going to be um, immobile. But he asked for the doctor to, to shape them so that they could clamp them on the wheel so that he could get back out there. So, he, so he's walking around with his hands like this for the rest of his life. But that's so he can put his hands on the wheel. And I've always, I've always thought that, that that was a great choice, great heroism, and, and, and the passion of a guy who would do that. And that's, that's kind of been my, my template. That is amazing. Talk about getting back up on your horse. That's incredible. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, book you're reading now. Oh, I'm reading a, I'm reading a, a book that was, uh, was uh, recommended to me. It's about a... Um, an executioner in 16th century uh, Germany. Uh, it's wow. basically like, it's basically his diaries because he did keep kind of a, a journal, at least of his work. And it's just a, it's a historical recreation of what life was like um, then, but also for, for a, a job that was considered unclean, you know, that executioners weren't really allowed to be part of a regular society. And, this one guy was kind of a striver and wanted to uh, have his family business, which is what it was, become a business that was just as respected as, as other tradespeople. So it's a very interesting kind of a mindset and, mm -hmm. and world uh, and world from that time that I, that I'd never really considered, you know, you think about the mind of an executioner, even to this day, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, place to be. Yeah, that's great. I love. I've been on a history tear too. Um, I hope so. Uh, yeah, I'll get that. I'll get that recommendation from you. Yeah. Um, some some folks have uh, 
you know, advanced copies of novels on their desks. You might have some screenplays that are being shopped around, like please star in my screenplay. But what's what's on your um, desk these days? Either advanced copy books or screenplays. Anything interesting? Um, right. Well, it's been Kepler for a bit now because I just got those advanced copies, which is it's fun for me because it's so different from anything I've done before, even to look at. And then, um, what else is on that desk? I did find because um, my mother passed away just just recently, and I did I, I I came into possession of you know she was not a pack rat, but she certainly didn't throw a lot away, and she had my journals from when I was like ten years old. Oh my god! I, wow. Yeah. So I I've I've had those, and and actually. Um, my girlfriend uh, made me a mug with uh, one of the quotes from the journal, which which we laugh about because at 10 years old, it's already so me because it says, uh, today was frustrating and tomorrow's not looking much better. <laughs> That's perfect for a mug. That's amazing. <laughs> when you read this, can it conjure up the memory of, of the moments or even of writing it down at 10? No, like, I, I, I don't know if I can remember 10. I can't believe how similar he is to me. I mean, he's such a, he's, he's very deadpan. Uh, he loves sports. I mean, he, like I, I, I'm writing out my basketball averages to the, whatever decimal point they go to, you know, I'm just <laughs> consumed with, with sports performance and disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I guess maybe we're all fairly baked by 10. I don't know. That's, that's awesome. So what a gift to get that. That's so that's that's so fun. You know, I, I didn't just keep a journal. So it was an assignment of my I think of my Christmas vacation at that age, yeah. An assignment from your parents or from your teachers? No, from school. From school. From school. Okay. Uh, a few recent TV shows that you would recommend to the listeners. I love what we do in the shadows. I love that uh that vampire show on uh FX. Um uh, I'm, I, I have to say, I, I watched British Bake Off. I don't know why I'm not interested in baking. I'm not interested in Britain, but I watched the those, British Those Bake shows Off. are so relaxing. I've seen some of those. They are. They're like, they're like mental. They're like ambient. They're, yeah. they're, they're, <laughs> they're, you know, uh, I think I love that show so much because it's, it's supposedly a competition, but they're so British to one another. They're just so nice to one another. They, they, they don't want anybody to lose. And it's just nice being in that world for half an hour where everybody wants the best for everyone and they're just baking sweet stuff. You know, it's They like, do seem okay. a little more polite over there, except when you get in government and you watch those parliament debates and they're like, it's unbelievable how they go after each other. I wish we would yell each other down like that instead of like the gentlewoman from wherever is right yeah, now. Yeah. <laughs> yell her down. All right. Best concert you've ever been to? Mm. Uh, and, and this is not like it, the music was good, but it's just like the formative years. When I was 16, I saw Frampton Comes a lot, you know, the Peter oh, Frampton. Yeah. Uh, and it was just, it was just like a happening for me then, you know, he was just so popular and I was just so into it and Madison Square Garden. Um, yeah. I mean, when I was 14, I started going to concerts in Madison Square Garden. So I saw a lot of great stuff. I also, I talked about this on Seth Meyers the other day. I was also a bartender at Radio City Music Hall where I saw great acts. You Tons know, of shows. In, wow. In that, in that when were you doing that? Game. When? I was doing that right after college or like in between summers of college, maybe 20, 21, 22. So yeah. it was just a catering, a catering concession that had the bar there. And I saw oh, that's a great, great gig. Acts. So your family was living Upper West and you just come down to Radio City for that? No. Or where where were you born? Side. Lower East. Lower East okay. Yeah, no, I didn't Other get corner. to the upper until later. <laughs> okay. Um, all right, so overrated or underrated? I'll name a couple music acts. Okay. And not not a knock. This is just like not a knock on any band, just your personal taste relative to reception by the mm -hmm. general public. ACDC. Uh, underrated. Underrated, meaning you like them. Uh, the Who. I don't think you can rate them high enough. So I don't, I, I guess they're underrated. Um, yeah. The, the kinks. Kinks are underrated too. Um, you know, some of those riffs are so undeniable uh, and smart lyrics. 
I think in many ways they, they didn't have a musical identity like the other bands did because they, mm-hmm. they rocked hard, but they also did like a musical English, very musical kind of a thing. So mm, I think critics uh, didn't know what to make of them in a way. So I'd say underrated too. Yeah, I love the King. Whenever I'm on '80s on eight, you know, on the serious thing in the car all the time. When Kings come on, there's there's so many good ones that uh, well, Lola are underappreciated. I think because Lola yeah. was about a you know a drag queen, and I you know that that was a Planet of the Apes reveal in a song. It's like, oh my god, Lola's a guy. You know, it's it a guy, just, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> I, I was ten years old. You know, it's like I didn't know that happened. It was real education. Taylor Swift. Well, I don't really know her stuff so well, and I. I I, I think she's a really good songwriter, but she'd have to be overrated because she's so popular. Yeah, I mean, it's like she's almost yeah. nothing like her. I mean, even Madonna, she seems to be uh, going beyond yeah. all that. Kid Rock. Yeah. Kid Rock? Well, you know, that, that first song was great. It was Ba Wada Ba, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. I mean, that, that, was, that was a great song, and I love that. But um, I'd say he's both overrated and underrated. I think he's had a couple of really really you know this like the sweet home alabama remix that he did you know he's mm-hmm. talented but i saw him live once and he ran it was one of the best he's one of the best performers out there he plays like 10 right. different instruments he was buzzing around the stage yeah. it was couldn't believe how yeah, much energy I mean, was going on up I, there i think that's what i think that's what's the truth about him is he's a real musician you know so i'd, I'd mm-hmm. say he's underrated as a musician and probably overrated in terms of sales all right appropriately rated Maybe that's an option yes. too. How about James Taylor? I love sweet baby James. Come on, part of my part of my childhood. Uh, great voice, underrated guitar player. Very simple, underrated guitar player. Um, great songwriter. Yeah, uh, I think he's 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 properly appreciated. Okay, only two more: Justin Timberlake, the other JT. <laughs> the other JT. Well, that says it all, doesn't it? Um, Maybe I shouldn't say that. Actually, like there can be only yeah. one. It's like the Highlander. <laughs> I think, uh, and again, this is a guy who I think is really talented. Um, and some of those songs I'll listen to when they come on. But it, I, I'm not going to go home and put on a Justin Timberlake album to listen to. That's not mm-hmm. really a knock on him, but. Um, I will acknowledge his he's he's a super talented performer. He can dance, he can sing. He's a, he's yeah. a, he's a blue-eyed soul guy, you know, and I love like Daryl Hall as another guy in that in that category. I think Daryl Hall's really underrated as a Yeah. Yeah. A it's it's an age thing. Like we come back the the music that made the biggest impression on me was my teens. I I loved the Kinks and and a lot of these other rock bands. Justin Timberlake, I just sort of I I got here too soon for that, you know, and I'm sure if you talk to some 25 year old, they're like, who are the kinks? You know, I love James yeah. Timberlake. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they... last one, John McEnroe as a musician only. <laughs> he's got a, Have I you ever seen him play? Yeah. Have, <laughs> right. He, he hasn't even got a rating yet. He's got to work on that. <laughs> um, does he have original music? I, I feel like. I, well, actually, that's a good question. I don't know. I know he's in a band and he plays and he's done gigs. I don't know if they've actually recorded an album. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a good musician. I think he's a good guitar player. Um, have you seen him play? Sure you, I have, but it was before I played guitar, so I don't know. I I went to uh, Wimbledon like before I was well-known. It was probably 1989. And I saw at the Hard Rock Cafe, uh, McEnroe got up with Mats Wielander, and they oh, they nice. kind of had a band. They kind of had a band together. They both played guitar, and uh, you know it seemed like he could he could be up there, you know, certainly. So he's probably a really good guitar player at this point. All right, so let's go with underrated then. Underrated. Final and, and final question. Was nice to me when he sees me. I want I want him to say I'm an underrated tennis player. So. I, <laughs> All right, final question. One piece of good advice for the listeners, and it could be on anything, on writing, acting, life, East Coast versus West Coast. I mean, I think it's what I tell my kids is, uh, you know, I never learned anything from success. I only learned from failure. So embrace that. Um, another another thing that I'm trying to work with recently is, uh, you know, I, I was reading... 
books about anxiety, depression, things like that. And, and you know, we, we think of these uncomfortable states of being as things that we should medicate or eradicate or, you know, we have this vision of there's a life without anxiety and depression. And I think that I read this one guy or woman, I can't remember who said it, but said like, what if doubt is the air we breathe? You know, what if it's just part of our makeup and environment and it's not something adversarial to be eradicated? But, and so I try and live in that moment when I'm feeling the doubt, which is the seed of any, you know, artistic endeavor is you're, you're, you're going to be doubtful it's going to work out. It's like, well, what if that's the air I breathe? It's not unnatural. That's my world. I'm going to just like live in it. Mm-hmm. I love that. I that's that, great. But, I, that's great advice for any artist or, or even beyond. Yeah. David Duchovny, you are awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it was my pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. If you enjoyed this podcast, please download, rate, subscribe, write a comment. Let me know the authors you want to hear from. I read all the comments. Thank you. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.